The following is a discussion with Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Content Developer and Global Trainer with Hands to the Plow Ministries. You can find more from Dr. DeRoshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. Hello, Historical Faith Society members. I'm excited to have Dr. Jason DeRoshi with us now. Jason, you've been in other Patterns of Evidence films in the past and really helping us uh, understand what does God's Word mean when it comes to, you know, taking it literally. Before we get into a lot of the details of the film, I just was curious, uh, would you share a little bit about yourself and how you became a person who believes in the Bible, a person who has a personal relationship with the Lord? My parents became believers when I was five. That same year, I was drawn to Jesus. I saw that he was a savior that I needed. That was 44 years ago. And by God's grace, I have been pursuing him. Uh, he has awakened me. Early on, I had a sense of call to vocational ministry, even in junior high. And I headed off to college. The Lord allowed me to study in Israel for a semester right after I had gotten engaged. And I got that ring on my girl's finger and headed away. But it was during that time that God really clarified that I was going to give my life to the ministry of the word. And I went off to seminary, had the opportunity to shepherd a flock as an associate pastor. And then 18 years ago began academic ministry. I've served in three different schools and I'm now research professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, and just delighting in being in a context that celebrates Jesus, celebrates the nations, and holds high the authority and truthfulness of God's Word. From the earliest stages, my parents let me know that the Bible was true. And as I've grown, the Lord has only proven himself, capturing my heart in increasing ways and letting me treasure the reality that what Scripture testifies to has historical groundedness. And indeed, it is because of that historical groundedness that we have hope. If the resurrection didn't happen, our faith is in vain. And the way that the Bible details something like the Battle of Jericho, if Jericho didn't happen, I believe our faith would be in vain. Going back to Sinai, going back to the Exodus, these are events that the biblical authors were grounding their hope in because God had intruded into space and time and disclosed himself and his will in a way that they could understand. And that's why historicity matters. The Bible is grounded in that historical context it grows out of that historical context. God has indeed disclosed himself through his word in a way that we can understand, and it's still speaking today uh, after thousands of years. Well, we're going to be talking a little bit about what your thoughts are in the film, but I was just curious, from a biblical standpoint, how long does a generation last? If we think about generations, what would your technical estimate be? Is a generation 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? What would you round it out to be? I'm giving you a test, by the way. Yes, I would <laughs> most commonly think of a generation as a 40-year period, but you can declare me wrong. I, I've thought of it that way myself, by the way, but okay, 
So 3,500 years divided by 40 equals 87. 87 generations. Now, 87 generations is surprisingly low in my mind. When you think about my grandfather and great-grandfather, and that means 87 people generations ago. Now, obviously, if you did it to 20, that would be 174, 175, 175 generations. We think about the fact that these events seem like they're ancient history, but in many ways, they're not. I mean, that there's only 87 generations back. Think about this, Jason. I was in New York City talking with some rabbis. They had the names of all their ancestors back to the Exodus. Oh my, amazing. Yeah, and there was a DNA test that was actually done where they were looking for the priestly line, the people who were supposed to be a part of the temple and the, they were mm -hmm. part of the tabernacle and they did a DNA test. And it was interesting to see that there's a connection to people all the way back uh, from the DNA. I did an interview with a Skorecki professor in Israel on that. But the reason I bring this up is that you started by telling us that your family, your, your family became believers, and then they shared with you, and you've shared with your children. And what I'm seeing is that we have a legacy of faith. And that's the message that Moses is giving that he says, these commands I give you today, teach them to your children. And you know, when you lay down, when, when you write them on your doorposts, you know, when you get up, when you're walking, you know, we're supposed to, could you just speak about why that legacy of faith is so important? I recall the very first time I, I truly felt in my soul that legacy of faith as a father. My daughter, who is now pregnant with my first grandchild, was five years old. And I called her and her three-year-old sister up to the couch. We were going to have our family worship time. And I was three weeks into reading the Book of Kings. And you know the story. Kings is a tragic story. South, north, south, north, over and over again. And my daughter said, Dad, what are we going to read today? And I said, we're going to read in Kings again. And she, holding her little paper and her marker, said, oh, Dad, all that ever happens in that book is the Kings are naughty, and then God has to kill them. <laughs> and I mean, we're three weeks in, you know, every day reading through the book of Kings. And I just felt this weight that my daughter has felt it. She's seen what Kings is about. And I just felt this connection with generations of men and women who have been shepherding their children to treasure the God of Scripture, that this is what it's about, that they would feel the weightiness of sin, that they would encounter the holiness of God and ultimately grow to treasure Christ. So this generational passing on is so vital. I think of Second Kings 17, where we get one of those few glimpses of the author of Kings, where he actually comments. Usually, they just show us. We see the story of Israel at Mount Sinai, engaging in the golden calf episode, and the narrator Moses never pauses and just comments. We see him as a character rather than as the narrator. But in Kings, in that moment, the narrator speaks and says, Oh, Israel, 
How long will you not believe? You have been without faith, just like your fathers have been. Or go back to Moses in Deuteronomy. He says, for 40 years, since the day I knew you, you've been stubborn and rebellious. How much more after my death? And just that reality, I think of the book of Judges in Judges chapter 2, where it only took a single generation for an entire population to not know God. The necessity for parents in every generation to be shepherding their kids, to see, to know, to encounter the living God is so absolutely vital. And we must not leave it up to the world because the world will certainly instruct, certainly shape a worldview that says God isn't important, he isn't one that we should value, he's not one that we should trust, we should go look elsewhere for our satisfaction. And parents need to be so intentional, as parents have been throughout the generations, going all the way back to Adam. And when we get into a book like the Exodus or Leviticus, both of which took place at Mount Sinai, at the heart of them is an encounter with the living God that is indeed supposed to be passed on through the generations. It's the salvation story. That's why I believe the Old Testament is so critically important for us to teach our family and children because it's the beginning, it's the fall, you know. It's creation and the fall of mankind and the need for a savior. And I think that we're living in a culture that doesn't think they need a savior because they don't know what the situation is. Because if everyone can do what's right in their own eyes, then there's no sin. Or to call something sin is a sin. <laughs> I appreciate what you're saying about this legacy of faith. And, I, and I've become very, very conscious of it myself is that we are called to pass on our faith to our children and to our grandchildren. And I think we're struggling right now. The culture wants our children. A lot of people in the culture aren't having children, but they want to have ours. They want to influence them to their worldview and to their mindset. And so it's a spiritual battle. That's the reason why the Historical Faith Society is here to encourage people to know that this word and these events that happen in the Bible actually really happen. And it's not that long ago. It seems like ancient history, but when I told you how many generations back it is, it really is a very short period of time when you look at it that way. If you think about, an, you know, getting on an airplane, and, you know, a lot of planes, if you're on a plane that only has 97 seats or 100 seats, that's actually a smaller plane. But if you could fly back in time and you put all your ancestors, you'd get them on a plane pretty easily. If you were at a church that only had like 97 people, the pews would not be that full, if you think about it that way. And oftentimes I've looked at the number of seats and I said, that's amazing that that could go back, you know, that far back, just, just as a visual way to look at it. Let's talk about Journey to Mount Sinai. You're, you're in one of our films again, and we appreciate that. Uh, we appreciate your passion, and we've created something called The Scorecard, and we just wanted people to know about it. And I wanted to know what you thought about this approach as we look at six different Mount Sinai's. There's a lot of information, so you were able to see the film, an early version of it. And so what, what are your thoughts about this? Well, I delighted in the film. And in relation to the scorecard, I delighted in the clarity that that scorecard brought to the discussion. It allows the viewer to watch the movie, not simply in a way that you're receiving, but you're actually engaging. You're the one as the viewer who is tracking the data in order to assess, does this particular 
cite align with the biblical testimony. And if it does not, we know it cannot be the true Mount Sinai. And so the scorecard was just brilliant in my mind to lay out the six potential sites in this movie, three of them, and to then line up what are indeed the facts of scripture that we know about in relation to Mount Sinai. So for you to lay out facts like journey details, the need to be near Midian, to consider is this a spot that could be called the backside of the wilderness, to assess various attributes that we know are associated with the mountain. If we know how big generally the population of Israel was, then we need to find a mountain that actually has a plain that's large enough for this many people to live out for over a year. There needs to be a water source that can provide substantive water. Indeed, there needs to be a stream. There needs to be a cave because we know that Elijah found refuge there. Indeed, he lodged there during his time at Mount Sinai. This approach, I think, is so brilliant. And I believe it's a key factor that for so many skeptics has led them to deny the historicity of the biblical account because certain sites have been elevated to say this is Mount Sinai. And even the skeptic can look at the biblical data and say, this, this is not the site. This isn't a real event is what they would conclude. And I think one of the brilliant features of the movie is that you are assessing the major sites that have been proposed in the last century and considering the details of every one of those sites, actually going to these sites, taking video footage, looking at pictures, evaluating the data, and all the while the Bible is the authoritative guide. So the structure of the movie itself is extremely clear. Even though you're providing six different options, the way that you've laid out the film allows for even the youngest to track and engage using their own scorecard and evaluating in extremely clear, clear terms, this is or is not the site. Because some of the sites include some of the necessary evidence and yet not all of it. Or potentially, maybe, this could fit and being able to evaluate a scorecard by filling in your square all the way or part way or not at all i thought it was brilliant well thank you yeah you know uh, i was praying for a breakthrough and there was a lot of information if you don't have that scorecard i use the analogy and i've used it in one of my interviews is that when i go to the grocery store i go there sometimes for only one or two things but as I'm walking through the aisles, I'm seeing more and more, and my arms start getting fuller and fuller, and we've all done that, right? So I thought, this frees the audience. When you go on this investigation, you're going to be able to go. And, and I think the thing that's great is that we've got the biblical criteria listed in advance. So the biblical criteria is listed. You can come prepared, you know, like you've done some homework to read and sharpen yourself. So when you enter into this investigation with me, you're going to be able to look at the scriptures and you're going to say, okay, this is what it says in Exodus. You're going to understand the campsites. In fact, we even have a little outline of what the campsites are, and we're showing the Sinai Peninsula with the different locations for the mountains. This was a good, I think, inspired idea to basically pull it together for people.
And I think this might be a new interactive approach I'm going to use going forward, if I can find a way to adapt it. And we might even go backwards and make a scorecard for some other films. But it's just a way to kind of engage, engage people. Well, I do think it's going to work well. And perhaps more than any other of your films, it draws the reader in to truly feel like we are doing the investigation with you and almost walking with you in this path of discovery that you yourself have journeyed. We know that the Israelites were complaining an awful lot. <laughs> and you know, thinking about this, they complained when they got to the sea, like, did you bring us out to die? You know, they'd rather be back in Egypt. I wanted to talk with you about the, the spiritual lesson, God calling these people. They, here they had seen the 10 plagues, which were miraculous. They saw the destruction of the Egyptian army. Before that, they saw the parting of the water. They literally walked through the sea and they experienced all this. Can you explain to me why they kept complaining? <laughs> is, it the, is it just human nature for us to see God doing something but still not trust him? Moses, his favorite three terms for Israel is that they were stubborn, unbelieving and rebellious. And he said they'd been that way since the day he met them in Egypt. So this wilderness generation has a heart problem. And those who have a heart problem are easily misguided. Oh God, help us not have hard hearts. You're right. I, I think of Deuteronomy 29 one through four, where Moses says, oh, Israel, you've seen so much. That's what you were just describing. You have seen all that God did against the Egyptians, the signs and the wonders, the great acts of power that Yahweh did against Pharaoh and against all of Egypt. And yet he says, yet God has not given you eyes to see, ears to hear, or a heart to know. Israel was spiritually disabled and God didn't overcome it. They remained deaf, blind, and unknowing. Oh God, help me, help my children, help the people in my church that are showing up week after week, not be blind, not be deaf, and know you for who you are. Otherwise, we are quick to grumble. I mean, it is just amazing that Israel arrives at Mount Sinai and God's glory is still blazing. The very glory, the cloud of glory that looked like a cloud by day and fire by night, this darkness that was producing earthquake and thunder and lightning. I mean, while they're still at Mount Sinai, they once again begin to grumble and think God has left them. Uh, Moses is not coming back and the glory cloud is still right there and yet they turn their eyes and commit idolatry. It makes me think very specifically of Paul's charge. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the New Covenant Church in Corinth when he reaches back in his mind to this very time period of Israel going through the sea and wandering through the wilderness, their time at Mount Sinai and their time beyond. I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul says, I don't want you church to be unaware that our fathers were all of them under the cloud. You have some great depictions of 
the cloud in the movie. They were under the cloud, all of them passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All of them ate the same spiritual food. That's a, a picture of the manna being provided for them. It may also be potentially a picture of the very word of God being given to them. All of them drank the same spiritual drink, that imagery of, of the rock that brought forth living water for the people that followed them. And then Paul says that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then Paul says, what happened back there took place as examples for us. And that relates to what you're talking about. Oh, that we would read the Old Testament to find examples. And in this instance, it's examples of what not to do. When time gets hard, when the trial gets extended, God help us remember his bigness, all that he's done in our past, that he is for us. Paul goes on to say, we must not put Christ to the test. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor should we grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So Paul is indeed, he's just reaching back to these very episodes, their journey to Mount Sinai and their journey from Mount Sinai and saying, church, God gave us this. This is Christian scripture designed to motivate us in this instance to not be like Israel. Don't let our hearts in the midst of weariness, don't let our hearts stop trusting, but rather hope. Because when we do, when that grumbling comes out, he says we're putting Christ to the test. So may, may God help us. This It is serious, but you and I both know it's really the temptation of what the prosperity gospel is. We have a disposition, all of us, to think we're entitled to things God never promised. So when trials come, we feel we shouldn't be expecting this, even though Jesus said, it's only through trials that we will enter the kingdom of heaven. So th these are weighty things, and it's, it's easier to talk about it right here than to actually start journeying this path to glory. And for you and I, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, it's no longer Mount Sinai that we're journeying to, it's the heavenly Jerusalem. He actually contrasts the two mountains, and he elevates the heavenly Jerusalem before us, and then he says, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And that's my prayer, that, that I would be the type of person, that you would be the type of person, that our viewers would become increasingly the type of people who engage God with reverence and awe. And I hope that through a movie like this, as, as we meditate, not simply on a place, but on a person, on the Yahweh who disclosed himself at Mount Sinai, who met a people and entered into a covenant. And it was through this people ultimately that the Messiah would rise and that we could know lasting salvation, that we would be gaining from even a film like this, reverence and awe for the God that we are seeing declared in front of us through a movie like this, a God who has entered into real space and time and met Israel at a real mountain, that God is a consuming fire. 
I think the big lesson is, is what is my attitude when God takes me out of this, this place of bondage in my own life or this place that's not where God wants me to be? I think the Israelites in some ways got used to their bondage. They had lived in it for such a long time that they were comfortable with it and they wanted to go back. And they talked about the meat pots, right? They said better that we had food, to eat. we had meat pots, you know, they had a place to sleep, they had water. They were comfortable in their slavery. And yes. I think that's the wake up call for me. Am I comfortable in maybe a slavery that I can't even recognize because I've been in it for so long that I don't realize what freedom would look like. And God is saying, well, come and follow me. I'm going to free you from this bondage. And there's a lot of metaphors you can look at, but if we look at the spiritual world of darkness that wants to keep us in bondage in certain areas of our life or in our families, in our personal life, and God is saying, follow me, I'm going to free you from that. And you're like, but it's dangerous out there. I'm going into the wilderness. I mean, what am I gonna eat? What am I gonna drink? In Jesus in the Gospels even talks about, you know, don't worry about what you're gonna eat or drink. But this is hard because I struggle with provision. You know, making films, having a staff, I'm looking at myself and saying, you know, I understand in being in the desert myself. I was with my wife and she was very scared about getting trapped out there because it was so foreign to us, you know? And so this exodus that God calls us today, out of this, what we might even understand, is this place he doesn't want us to be. And he's calling us to himself to give us a mission. I think there's things that we will learn by going to see this film, Journey to Mount Sinai. And as we said, it's gonna be in theaters on October 17th and 18th. And I wanna encourage people to see it and to invite their friends and family because it also votes. It's a vote for biblical evidence. It lets the theaters know and the mainstream know that there are people that want to see more biblical films like this that help us to take a moment from all the distractions of the world, all of the bad news, all of the health issues, all the political issues. And then what are we doing? We're focusing on God's Word. We're focusing on where did these events happen and what do they mean for us today. That's why I felt like I'm supposed to make these films and keep making them as long as I can to basically keep showing the patterns of evidence of God acting in history. One last question uh, we can talk about is manna. Because in the film, you're sharing a little bit about manna. So what is the meaning of manna? What does that word mean? It simply means what or what is it? And as such, it seems clear that Israel hadn't recognized it before, that this is indeed a miracle bread that God was supplying for a temporary window in Israel's existence. As soon as they crossed the Jordan River and were ready to enter into the Promised Land, the manna stopped. So over this 40-year period, it is the substance that God is principally using morning after morning. We're told they were like sweet flakes. So you've got these, these frosted manna flakes morning after morning. And if you had to eat the same thing, you may say, I'm sick of this. And Israel got sick of it. And yet it was God's provision and it sustained them. It's a miracle that God gave. And yet what's intriguing is that though it was a means for keeping some alive, for all the Exodus generation, 20 years old and upward, it did not keep them alive. They died quicker than was expected. In Psalm 90, where Moses himself, it's a Psalm of Moses, says people live 70 or at the most 80 years. So let's consider 20 years old, add 38 years to 
the time after they met God at Kadesh Barnea, after they had left Mount Sinai, they grumbled once again. They said the giants are too big. God is too little. At Kadesh Barnea, they get judged and God says, okay, 38 more years, totaling 40 years from the time they left Egypt to the time they will enter the promised land, all the generation will be wiped out. Add 38 years to those who may have been 20. That puts them at 58 years. But the expected life was 70 years, 70 or at the most 80. So what that means is that you had a very large population, which I believe was, was in the millions, just allowing the Bible to speak as it does, in the millions, and all the men dying at a much more rapid rate than they should have. And that's what's significant when Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Even though the manna was the means of sustaining life, Israel. It was not enough to keep the rebellious alive. When God said they were to be judged, they were judged. And those who lived were those who took God's word seriously. And it's really a challenge to us. The manna is a, is a symbol of great provision through a miracle-working God, but it's also a warning that anything other than God's word ultimately will not sustain. It is the living and abiding word of God by which we are saved. And Paul's challenge in Galatians is, did you receive the spirit by works of law or by hearing with faith? And if you started with the spirit, why do you want to continue apart from the spirit? Continuing to hear the word and continuing to be filled up and fed by the spirit. I see both through the manna, this great picture of God's miracle working power and a great picture that even that was not what God used to sustain them. He elevates his word as the ultimate answer for life in the story that we're looking at now. Well, I want to thank you again for helping us with this film and for being a part of it. And I think it's it's been great to have your insights into, you know, what does this mean for us today? And we are looking forward to working with you again in, in the future on future films as we're moving forward, you know, looking and testifying to evidence for the Bible. And once again, I, I want everyone to know that I've been searching to find a pattern, if it's true or not. And what we're seeing is that there is a pattern and that it is showing itself to be trustworthy and true. We don't have answers for everything, but that doesn't mean that there aren't powerful evidences that are testifying to events of the Bible. And it can be sometimes that there's new things that are coming along all the time, like this Mount Ebal curse as we move forward after, after Journey to Mount Sinai. We're going to be moving into the wandering, the building of the tabernacle. There's so much more to talk about and how they relate to us. But what's your last word to people today? Because they are somewhat, I think, fearful about what the future holds and maybe confused. What do you say to people of faith? Uh, how would you encourage them in your closing thoughts? All of these movies are designed to help those who are questioning, those who are skeptical, to just recognize God's word can be trusted. And that would be my final, my final word to viewers today. You can trust God's word. It is consistent and wholly reliable. It is trustworthy in all it declares regarding faith and practice. And it is accurate in what it declares in relation to the facts, the chronologies, the geography, the history, even the science. 
aligning ourselves when we can grasp what the biblical authors intend because it is God's word, it will be infallible. It will be inerrant. It's just by nature because of who God is and the kind of work that you're doing, Tim, and your great team is doing in creating these films, I think is serving the broader church, giving those who, who have questions, letting them see once again, the Bible is grounded in history. And it's just reinforcing that what the church has held to for 2,000 years, what the believers have held to since the beginning of creation, that God is a God, the God of glory. When he appears to us, when we see him, we recognize he is one that can be trusted. And so it is that we walk by faith. We step out trusting him to do what he says he will do. And he's brought Jesus and our hope is secure. Well, thank you again, Dr. Jason Derushi, for joining us. I'm so excited that you're going to be a grandparent. I am a grandparent myself. I have eight grandchildren, and I'm, I'm lobbying for more. I'm not sure if I'm going to get <laughs> any more, but uh, you'll, you'll certainly enjoy that. I look forward to it myself. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you, Historical Faith Society, for being a part of this again. And remember, your support helps us to make these Patterns of Evidence films and to create programming like what we're creating so that we can preserve, educate, and pass on the historical credibility of the Bible to the next generation. God bless. Thank you for listening to this discussion with Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more writings, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring the God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.